One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the trial of Lizzie Borden. And I'll be talking about Alice Crimmins, a beautiful woman who became a tabloid sensation when her young children went missing. Okay. Lizzie Borden. <laughs> Let's do the cheer we choreographed. Yes. No, Lizzie Borden, this is a, she's a heavy hitter. Yeah. Big time Oh, oh, I didn't even Ooh. think about that. That is dark. Not to sound biased, but I think she's a heavy hitter. No, this one, uh, the idea for this one came from Jamie Lynn on Facebook, who yeah. was just like, you know, she was really nice about it. She was like, hey, no pressure, but. Would be you guys- interested to see what you guys think about these kind of this kind of like hope, high profile case. <laughs> oh, <laughs> few people know <laughs> that Lizzie was also a hoeing it around. Not true at all from my research. But anyway, uh, how much do you know about this case? Uh, I know the rhyme, and uh-huh. uh, that's about it. You want to say the rhyme? Oh, gosh. I'm going to pull up the rhyme, and we'll see how right you are. I can't think of how it starts. Lizzie Borden. Took an axe, gave her father 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41. Yeah. Yeah, hey, good job. I haven't even pulled it up. Um, And, of course, some of these sources are like, uh, just so you know, she didn't actually get 41 wax. It's like, all right, okay. Yeah, it's it's more about the rhyme yeah. than the accuracy. Okay, so let's set the scene. Yes. It's 1892. I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> We're at the Borden family home at 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. If you want to look this place up, it's a bed and breakfast. I was going to say, it's still yeah. around. It's a bed and breakfast. Okay, hold on. Wait, I was not prepared. I could tell. You what's had your the, hands clasped like address? a church lady. I was trying to be a good listener. 92 2nd Street, Fall River, Massachusetts. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'm seeing it. Mm hmm. I'm seeing it. Nice size house. That's not the address. Oh, what? <laughs> 92 2nd Street, Fall River, Massachusetts? No? You know, another way to do it would be to just look up... Li- oh, that is not the address at all. Oh, you know what? I think I have the original address, but now it's been changed. Okay. I think, actually, it's 230 2nd Street, Fall River, Massachusetts. I'm sorry about that. Can you imagine if anyone is actually like They're looking like, oh, this up? Oh yes, this uh, this uh, business park. That's where. Wow, they had a really strange looking house, huh? <laughs> like all concrete. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Seeing it now. Yeah, that looks like a home. That is. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm picturing myself there. I'm sorry. What year is it? 1892. Sure is. Okay. So, the home is owned by Andrew Borden, mm-hmm. who is crazy rich. By 1892, he was worth about $300,000. Adjusted for inflation. Excellent. About $8 million. Wow. Yeah, pretty crazy. Nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
He's got like $8 million. He made his money through a couple different ventures, but mainly it was real estate and manufacturing. Excellent. Was he manufacturing cheese slices? Oh, Borden, right. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why would she? I even have prepared in my head like a few of the things he manufactured because I just pictured you being like, and what exactly did he manufacture? (laughs) What exactly did he manufacture, Kristen? Furniture was one of the things. Excellent. Now I can't remember any of the other things. (laughs) So his two adult daughters, Lizzie and Emma, also lived in the family home. And of course, his second wife and their stepmother, Abby Borden, also lived there. Mm -hmm. How old was she? Um, I think she and Andrew were roughly the same age. Just checking, making Um, sure everything's on the up and up for you, Kristen. (laughs) You know how judgmental I get about age gaps. Um, One of the... uh, well, spoiler alert, but I mean, this is only a spoiler alert if you just have nothing. I mean, like, you've never heard a thing about this. Um, one of the newspaper headlines uh-huh. when they died said something like, it said something about how he was a, you know, respected businessman uh-huh. and his aged wife Ooh. murdered. So, Ooh. boy, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. My husband's a respected businessman, and I'm his aged wife. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so uh, no big age gap there. Excellent. Here's the thing, though. Life in the Borden house is a little tense. Mm. Andrew is crazy rich, as I've said, but he didn't get that way by spending money. Oh, yeah. He's a real tightwad, huh? Dude was a tightwad. (laughs) So the family home was very nice. But when you consider how wealthy they were, they were actually, oh my, could have been (laughs) way nicer. And by that, I mean like in the late 1800s at this point, Mm -hmm. most super rich people had electricity Mm -hmm. and they had indoor plumbing. Not the Bordens. Mm. Which to me, it's like that, oh boy. Man. If I'm peeing outside. I mean, if you're not spending your money on that, you're not spending your money on anything, I feel like, right? That's how I would feel. Yeah. So, here's another kind of interesting thing. They didn't even live in the nicest part of Fall River. Mm. So they didn't have flushing toilets. And if that didn't make things tense enough, <laughs> Lizzie and Emma weren't huge fans of their stepmom. Oh, gosh. Their relationship with her was very chilly. Mm-hmm. They referred to her as Mrs. Borden. Ooh. And by the way, I my assumption when I first started looking into this was like, oh, well, this must have been a much later in life marriage. No, she married into the family when the girls were pretty young. That's what I call my stepparents. Mrs. Borden. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. I call my step-parents Steve and Lisa because yeah. that is their name. Yeah, which I think most people <laughs> <Yes>. do. <laughs> Please call Steve Mrs. Borden Mrs. from now on. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that made this relationship kind of tough was they secretly suspected that Abby had married their dad for his money. Mm. But, I mean, I feel like that did not pay off at all. I mean, if you married a rich guy who's not not getting you a flushing toilet, Mm -mm. you did some bad gold digging. Yes! (laughs) So, things aren't going great, but they're not horrible either. Like, a lot of people said that they actually had a fine relationship. So, it kind of depended on who you asked. But then things did get pretty bad. 
around 11 a.m. on August 4th, 1892. The family maid, Bridget, who also went by Maggie, was napping in the attic. Oh, I'm sorry. I... Huh? What? Why? I thought the family was making something. I thought you said the family maid. Like they were getting ready to make something. I had the wrong kind of maid. They were making a human woman. (laughs) The family maid, M-A-I-D. This is not your fault. This is my fault. Well, no, I I could have worded it differently. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) The family maid. Yes, got it. A Lego set of... (laughs) No. Bridget was napping in the attic, and she woke to the sound of city bells, so she knew it was 11. Yeah. And a scream from downstairs. Mm. It was Lizzie. Lizzie shouted, Maggie, come down. Come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. So Maggie runs down the stairs, and she's horrified by what she sees. Mr. Borden has been brutally murdered. His dead body was covered in blood. He was laid out on this Victorian-looking couch, which I'm realizing now is kind of dumb to say. It's just a couch at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm sure it was kind of out of style, because you know he didn't buy a new couch anytime soon. Did he make the couch? (laughs) The family... Made the cat. No, you said he manufactured furniture. Oh, you know what? I bet he did. You know what I bet it was? I bet it was like a reject. Nobody bought that model and he was so... Yeah, it was like a regular. Like one arm was slightly off. You kind of slumped over when you sat on that side. Why are we talking shit about this poor dead man? (laughs) Oh, God. And now I have to go into this paragraph that's just terrible. Uh, The attack was so violent that it was hard to even recognize him. No. Andrew's face... You know Why? Because Lizzie was heavy <laughs> Thank God everyone in this story is dead. <laughs> I can't I can't go on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I take that back. Oh good. It's a horrible crime, obviously. Well, the yeah, man yeah. is dead. Yeah. And it's not the least bit funny. Andrew's face was in pieces. And one of his eyes had come out. What? That's not my fault that you made it. Not my fault. Well, you, you're making That's this. your fault his eyeball fell out. <laughs> you're making this con- this like face like, why did you make me say that thing right before yeah. you read that thing? Yeah. Not my fault that you're just tasteless. Uh, it's distasteful. Oh, distasteful. Yeah. Instead of just tasteless. Yes. <laughs> So Andrew had been hacked to death. Maggie and Lizzie are distraught, obviously. Lizzie gets the attention of her neighbor. She's like, my father has been murdered. The neighbor rushes over, and pretty quickly, it just becomes total chaos. News of the murder spreads. And people are there talking to Lizzie, and they're like, where's your stepmom? Where's Mrs. Borden? Yeah. And Lizzie says, oh, uh, right. Well, she was called away. I got a note earlier um, saying that her friend was sick, so she went to go check on the friend. But I'm pretty sure I heard her come back home. Will someone go upstairs and check on her? Okay, that's sketch. Why? Why wouldn't she go up and look for her? Uh, Because she just saw her dead dad. Eyeball out. Yeah, I mean... 
I mean, that would be shocking. You're right. Yeah, I mean, imagine... Unless you were the one that did it. It'd still be pretty shocking. (laughs) (laughs) So the maid is like, no way. I am not going up there alone after what I just saw. So the neighbor's like, okay, okay, we'll go together. They go upstairs together, and they come upon the dead body of Abby Borden. She's been murdered in the same brutal fashion Mm -hmm. as her husband, So there's more screaming, more panic. Eventually, the police arrive, and they're like, don't worry, we got this. They felt Andrew's body and realized that it was still warm. So they're like, all right, the killer can't be too far away. away. They go upstairs to Abby's body, and it's cold. Hmm. They're like, this crime is horrifying. We will find the intruder who did this. Mm Mm-hmm. Police, of course, talked to Lizzie, and they were really gentle with her because of the circumstances. Uh, But overall, they thought her attitude was super weird. Really? She was really chill. Which could be... Shock. Shock. Mm -hmm. Or she could have just murdered her parents. I feel like it's so hard to know with these things. What's what's weird behavior and what's not. Yeah. And I also wonder if the police at this time had, I mean, it'd be weird if you had that much experience with brutal murders in a town of this size. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, 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 that's true. Anyway, so there's that. Did they know right away that they'd been killed with an axe? You know, I think they figured it out pretty quickly. Uh Um, And I also think the wounds were pretty obvious. obvious. Yeah. Do we know where the axe is at this point not at this point okay excellent continue so the officer asks her who she thinks might have killed her mom and dad and lizzie said mrs borden was not my mother she was my stepmother my mother died when i was a little girl Ooh. Ooh. what's That's... colder than being cold <laughs> ice, ice cold <laughs> Yeah, thoughts? That is cold. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, she went upstairs to lie down. And her doctor came by to give her some medicine to kind of keep her calm. Uh Uh-huh. And since she was so sick, the police didn't spend much time looking at Lizzie's room. They just wanted to be courteous. And so they just kind of glanced at everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What did they find? Nothing. What would they have found had they looked harder? That's an excellent question. But we'll never know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that... When I say that's an excellent question, I mean it. Like, um, a lot of people are like, well, gee, it would have been great if they'd, like, looked for bloody clothes in her closet. And, you know, they did look in her closet, but, again, they didn't look hard. You know, they thought an intruder had come in and here she was so sick and they didn't Mm want to be rude and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. They were probably distracted by, like, the posters of her favorite composers on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Mozart and (laughs) cutoffs. He did him with, like, his tongue out, like, doing, like, the rock fist. <laughs> Looking super hot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Lizzie was single, so That's she had right. to have some posters That's out. right. <laughs> so police didn't spend much time in Lizzie's room. Mm-hmm. But they did spend some time in the basement. Mm. 
Right away, they found two hatchets and two axes. Hmm. And eventually, they found a third hatchet. And this one was missing the handle. What, so they've got the head of a hatchet? Mm-hmm. All right. So it looked like the handle had been snapped off. Mm-hmm. Recently. Mm. Now... How could they tell it was recently? That is an excellent question. Uh-huh. And you sound like the defense right Ooh. now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little foreshadowing. The police at that time, they, yeah. were, they were all in agreement. This looks like a recent snap. Okay. But I think that's a very fair question. Yeah. How the hell can how, you tell? How can you tell? Okay. All right. Maybe there are, there are ways. I am not a handle expert, so... Um. Neither, arguably, are most police officers, but, (laughs) you know, whatever. Uh, Usually, most police departments have, like, one guy who's been to handle school. (laughs) Handle school? He can be the expert. He's like, finally, I can get out from behind this desk and do some work. (laughs) So many people are turning to guns these days. (laughs) Uh, There was something else that was weird about... About the axe. Mm -hmm. The dust on it was different from the dust on everything else in the basement. What the fuck's that mean? Well, the police took it to mean that it had been in the dust had been intentionally applied onto it to make it look like it had been in the okay, basement. Okay, so for a you long take time. it to the basement, you kinda like flip it over in the dust. Right. And then you set it there with the other stuff. Yes. All right, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. 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 Did it have blood on it? No. Okay. At least I don't think, I feel like that would have. Would have probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if they're talking about the snap on the handle looking fresh, I think they might mention. <laughs> oh, by the way, there's fresh blood. <laughs> so aside from that, the police really didn't have a lot to go on. Meanwhile. What about, they talked to this maid at all? Yeah, a bit. But I mean, she, she told them what she knew. She was just sleeping. That's her alibi. Just asleep when it happened. You sound a little like some of these conspiracy theorists <laughs> from more recently. But yeah, so, and I wish I'd written this part down, but earlier in the day, she'd mm-hmm. been asked to go clean the exterior windows of mm-hmm. the house, which apparently sucked because it was just such a hot day. So she went out and did a- I don't care if it's 70 and beautiful out. That sounds like the worst job. Yeah. Yeah. So she did that on like a super hot day <laughs> yeah. and, and then like was so exhausted yeah. that she came in. All right. To her attic room. Which had to be just sweltering. Boiling hot and took a nap. So that's that's her story. Meanwhile, people are just horrified by this crime. Who could have done it? Yeah. Initial reports blamed some dude. Some vagrant. The Fall River Herald said the top suspect was a Portuguese laborer who had come to the house to get some money from Andrew that Andrew owed him. But apparently Andrew had said, no, come back later. What? Yeah. Yeah. Not buying it. Why not? What's he? So he he doesn't get his $12 he's owed, (gasps) and so he hacks up a man and his wife, but leaves the two daughters and the maid? No. Oh, I should mention... Emma was out of town at this point, so it was... Fine. Left the one daughter and the maid? Still no. Okay. Doctors, meanwhile, examined the bodies. And for the most part, they were like, yeah, a man did this. Mm. 
How can you tell? Because it couldn't have happened from some weak woman with her weak little <laughs> arms. She'd be like, oh. <laughs> no way could she brutally murder two people. Had to be a dude. Okay. But it really didn't take too long for people to change their tune. Yeah. Suspicion shifted away from this mystery man and on to 33-year-old Lizzie Borden. Ooh, 33? Spinster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that, too. What's wrong with her? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe because she's a cold-blooded murderer. People kind of pick up on that. Yeah, she just kind of always had a vibe. She always had kind of a hatchet vibe. She's, she's very hatchety. So people start coming forward, and they're like, you know, Lizzie never really liked her stepmom. Yeah, she called her Mrs. Borden. <laughs> I can't believe that. That's terrible. What's worse, hacking your stepmom to death? <laughs> no, obviously. I'm sorry, you just seemed so disgusted. Then a guy who worked at the local... As someone who has great step-parents. No, I know. Yeah, I I know where that's coming from. It's like you love your step-parents so much, and like that coldness just seems so foreign to you. Yes, exactly. A guy who worked at the local pharmacy was like, uh, excuse me, hello, hey, I don't know if this is relevant, but the day before those two were murdered, Lizzie came in here asking for poison. Hmm. And I refused to sell it to her. Oh, shit. So she had to go with the axe. She had a Perhaps. real axe to grind. <laughs> <laughs> that pharmacist is next on her list. <laughs> Telling me I can't buy poison. So police circle back to Lizzie. And this time they ask tougher questions. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, she did not hold up well under pressure. Really? Her alibi kind of sucked. She claimed that around 9 a.m. she was upstairs putting shams on pillows. And later, around the time frame when her dad was murdered, she said she was out in the barn looking for supplies for an upcoming fishing trip. She was like, yeah, I was up there for like 15 minutes. And Putting was- shams on pillows? Yeah, how long does that take? That's the worst alibi I've ever heard. Maybe she didn't know the trick where you put the pillow under your uh, chin. And then shake it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I was up in the barn loft for like 15 minutes looking for those things. Hmm. So police are like, okay, cool. They go to the barn. It's super dusty. Yeah, no way she was up there. There are no footprints in Mm -hmm. the dust. Mm -hmm. And nothing appears to have been disturbed. The other thing they thought was like, okay, the day of the murders, it was crazy hot. Crazy hot. Mm -hmm. And obviously it was super hot in the loft of this barn. Yeah. So why would you go up there voluntarily and spend 15 minutes up there yeah. for supplies that you need for a fishing trip that's a few days off? You yeah. know, this is a task you can put off if you need to. Mm-hmm. There was something else, too. Lizzie had said that the morning of the murders, she received that note saying that her stepmom's friend was sick. 
and she was pretty sure she gave Abby the note, and Abby went to check on the friend. So police were like, okay, where's that note? Yeah. She ate it. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't know. She didn't know? No. Mm -mm. What? What, Brandy? She just didn't know where the note was. (laughs) How dare you ask follow-up questions? Doesn't make any sense. So police were like, okay, we'll find it. So they searched the house. No. Nope. Couldn't find that note. More and more details roll in. And police start hearing really weird details about how Lizzie reacted to finding her father and stepmother dead. Witnesses told police that immediately after the murders were discovered, Lizzie kind of sent people out of the house to go do errands, like, go get the doctor, go get this, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, she stayed in the house alone with these two bodies. Mm, That's weird, too. So I... I feel like that's one of those things that, for me, can kind of go either way. Yeah. One way is, like, you know, if you truly believe that an an intruder came to the house, murdered these two members of your family, why would you want to be left there alone? Like, couldn't he come back? Of course, if you were the murderer, you wouldn't be worried about that. So it's like, I can stay here all day. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I can you see... You could just be protective yes, of yes. your family members. Absolutely. And especially yeah. when people are starting to swarm around yeah. you're like, oh, isn't it terrible? Merci. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's my old-timey impression. It's <laughs> like a French guy. <laughs> my hope is that I just sound like Kenan Thompson in a bathtub. <laughs> 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 So that struck police as very odd. So odd that the district attorney started up this official inquest Mm. into what happened. And basically, during that, he essentially interrogated Lizzie for three days without an attorney present. Wow. For three days? Mm Mm-hmm. What'd he do? Put her in a cell at night? No. So here was kind of the weird thing. She was she was not charged with anything uh-huh. at this point. So she was living at home, but she was basically surrounded by police gotcha. at all times. I gotcha. um, so these kind of it's not technically called an interrogation, but it was it happened in a courtroom. Yeah. And she did ask for her attorney to be present. Okay. But under Massachusetts state law at the time, people who were being questioned in an inquest didn't necessarily have the right to an attorney. Wow. More on this later. Excellent. So Lizzie's testimony during the inquest was a mess. Mm -hmm. It was contradictory. At times she seemed like confused by herself. Oh, gosh. A lot of her friends who supported her through this whole thing heard about her testimony and listened to the inconsistencies. And they were like, whoa, maybe she did do this. Right. Yeah. About a week after the crimes were committed, police arrested Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. She was charged with murdering her father and stepmother. Lizzie pled not guilty. All right. They put her in front of a grand jury that November, but the grand jury initially refused to give an indictment. Really? But then they reconvened. The prosecution had new evidence. 
Okay, and a couple different places. This is kind of the tough thing about some of these old timey oh, yeah. ones. A couple different places have this a few different ways. I'm just going with the source that I'm just deciding to trust. Excellent. So whatever. How, how did you vet them? Take us through your vetting process. The source I'm trusting is famoustrials.com. Excellent. Which is a website. I mean, I'm not educating you on this, obviously, because <laughs> we both love this site. But it's it's put together by a law professor who studies famous trials. And he only writes about ones that he was present at. <laughs> He's a vampire. (laughs) Very impressive, I gotta say. So that's how I decided. Wonderful. Love it. Okay. So a friend of the Bordens named Alice Russell had stayed with Lizzie and Emma for a few days after the murders, Mm -hmm. just to kind of be supportive. And she said, yeah, when I stayed with them, I saw Lizzie burn a blue dress. And when I asked her why she was burning the dress... Lizzie was like, oh, it's covered in old paint. But that was pretty suspicious because on the morning of the murders, Lizzie had been wearing a blue dress. At that, the grand jury was like... Sorry, that was a weird voice. (laughs) (laughs) It was a gas. It was good. So the grand jury heard that and they were like, yeah, Yeah. we're for sure indicting you. Yes, indictment handed down. Mm Mm-hmm. Lizzie was like, shit, good thing I'm rich. She hired three of the best attorneys she could find. She had her family lawyer. She had another Boston lawyer Mm -hmm. and another lawyer who was the former governor of Massachusetts. Wow. Yeah. But here's the thing. The prosecution wasn't too shabby either. One attorney was Hosea Knowlton, who would go on to become the attorney general for the state of Massachusetts. The other was William Moody. He would later go on to become the Attorney General for the United States and eventually be appointed to the Supreme Court! (laughs) (laughs) So everyone's gearing up for Lizzie's trial. The media is obsessed with the case. The public is enthralled. Yeah. And then, on June 1st, just a few days before Lizzie's trial was scheduled to start, a Fall River resident named Bertha Manchester was found dead in her kitchen. She had been hacked to death with an axe. Whoa! What? Yeah. I've never heard this part before. I hadn't either. I thought it was shocking. Okay. When I wrote this script, I made a decision, and now I'm changing my decision. Hang on. I'm going to just straight up tell you what happened with that. You were going to sell like a mystery, and now you're not? Well, there's just too many mysteries in this. (laughs) So, you know, that happened like, I want to say four or five days before Lizzie's trial, which I would think would, you know, totally raise suspicions there. But according to what I'm seeing here, the person who did that was a Portuguese immigrant. What? I know. I know. I think this is super weird. Um, and he was convicted in her murder, but was determined, and I'm reading straight from Wikipedia, so take this for what it's worth, was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. Your face is the same as mine. I'm like shocked by this. I, quite I had never heard this. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway... Everyone's like, well, that's weird. Yeah. On June 5th, 
1893, her trial began. It included a three-judge panel and a jury, which was made up of 12 white guys, and they all had mustaches. That's not true. What do you mean it's not true? Yes, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I lie about that? Why would they all have mustaches? I don't know. (laughs) Stylish back then. You want to see a picture of all of them? Why is that a... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, why is that something of note that they all had mustaches? Oh, it'll come up later. What? No, it won't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just saw a picture of them and I thought it was interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, all juries back then kind of look the same because like they're all white dudes, but like literally they're all where they all have like the same looking suit and the same mustache. All right. Would they clone a dude? <laughs> I don't think they had cloning back then. <laughs> but the Borden family made a human woman. <laughs> so obviously technology was pretty far advanced. <laughs> the prosecution's opening argument was dramatic. Prosecutor Thomas Moody brought Andrew and Abby's skulls. Oh in. my gosh. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like you expect that later in the trial... The skull? Yeah, to like show what happened to him. I don't. I think they usually have pictures, Kristen. I don't think they usually actually bring the body parts in there. Well, they did for this one. (laughs) (laughs) They did both. (laughs) Apparently, when he unveiled the the skulls, Lizzie fainted. Oh. When she came back to a few minutes later, Thomas kept right on trucking. He was like, Lizzie is the only person with a motive and the only person who had the opportunity to commit these crimes. What's the motive? That she just didn't like her stepmom? Well, she got a ton of money. Yeah, $8 million. Which she split with her sister. $4 million. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) But yeah, I guess the motive being she hates her stepmom. Her father also, and I'll get into this a little bit later, Her father had also given some property to Abby's sister, Mm. which pissed Lizzie and Mm -mm. Emma off. Don't take away my inheritance. That's, yeah. All right, all right. Did the skulls have, like, big, like, slash marks in them? Yeah, dude. (laughs) Yeah! Well, I mean, like, Andrew's eyes... was but your eye is not attached to your skull. Well, it it's inside your skull. But it's not like she took a but tiny the- hatchet to remove the <laughs> eye. I mean, she like it like came in, you know, so it just like the busted. So- the whole eye socket is... Okay. It was, it was pretty brutal. You can you Google it. Have seen the crime scene photos? Oh, yeah, I've seen the crime scene photos. The thing is, like, thank God they're black and yeah, white. So I could kind of handle it. there was, like... Red blood, you wouldn't be able to handle it. Well, it's like, it's blurry, it's black and white, so you kind of like... You can like tell yourself, it's just chocolate syrup, it's fine. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's one of those things that this like... I really made a mess making a chocolate <laughs> milk. <laughs> he was like, Lizzie is the only person with a motive and the only person who had the opportunity to commit these crimes. Yeah. Then he pulled out the axe head that he claimed she used to kill her dad and stepmom. Mm-hmm. Later, they called witnesses to the stand, and of course, the maid, Bridget, or Maggie. I hate when people go by two different names for these I'm things. not even sure how you get to Maggie from Bridget. I don't know either. Real weird. Mm. Suspect her, huh? Yeah. Don't you? Mm-hmm. 
She said, yeah, Lizzie was the only person I, I saw in the house. I already have a theory. What's your theory? Secret lesbians. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Have you read that somewhere? No. That's an honest to God theory. Is it really? Yes, it's an honest oh to God theory gosh. about this case. Um, should we discuss this now or later? We'll discuss it later. Okay, okay. I can't believe that that was your... Seriously. Yeah, that's seriously my theory. Hold on, we're pausing. What made you think secret lesbians? That Lizzie's 33? Lizzie's 33. Mm-hmm. Was it home? She's obviously not interested in marrying a man. I'm sure there's a man who would marry her if she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, secret lesbian. In love with the maid. You think, Bridget Maggie. What about Emma? Emma's even older than Lizzie. Nah, I don't know that she's a secret lesbian. I don't know enough about her. Okay. <laughs> Maybe she's in love with a Portuguese immigrant. Who's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Very sidetracked by the secret lesbian. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, she said, yeah, Lizzie was the only person I saw in the house around yeah. the time that her dad and stepmom were murdered. And oh, by the way, Andrew and Abby were really sick the night before the murder. Hmm. Attempted poisoning, eh? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> you don't approve? I don't. Okay. Her testimony also placed Lizzie at the spot where her stepmom had been murdered shortly after the murder took place. All right. So get this. She said that at one point, you know, Andrew had been out kind of running errands, doing his thing. He comes to the front door but couldn't get in, either because the door was locked or jammed. So she goes to the front door to try to get it open, but she actually had trouble with it. And so in the course of trying to get the door open, she cursed. And she said that after she cursed, she heard Lizzie laugh. And she heard the laugh come from the second floor. Mm-hmm. And See? basically, because of the layout of this house, if you were on the second floor, you would have had to have seen mm. Abby dead. Mm. Interesting. That would have done me in if it was me. I know. <laughs> That's why you can't kill people. I mean, you'd be laughing the whole way. That's why my serial killer name is so good. <laughs> the laugher. So that didn't look good for Lizzie. No. But the defense did a nice job in cross-examination, and they asked her about Lizzie's relationship with her stepmom, and Bridget said, look, you know, to be honest, I've worked there for two years. I've never seen them fight. Other witnesses took the stand. And again, the defense did a good job with them. The Borden family doctor testified that he arrived on the scene shortly after the murders, and that Lizzie had told them that her father had been murdered by one of his angry tenants. Mm-hmm. On cross-examination, the defense said, Hey, doctor, the prosecution is making a huge deal about how contradictory and confusing Lizzie's statements have been. They're so thrilled with how poorly she did during the inquest, but the whole time she was being questioned, you were giving her morphine, Right. So couldn't that be the reason that she wasn't totally making sense? Wouldn't that account for how foggy she was during the inquest? And the doctor was like, well, maybe. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Then up comes the neighbor who came over on the day of the murders to comfort Lizzie. And she said, yeah, I remember Lizzie wearing a blue dress that day. 
but it didn't have any blood on it. Then came Alice Russell. She's the woman who said that Lizzie burned the dress. Alice testified that the night before the murders, she had a really weird conversation with Lizzie. How weird? Well, Lizzie told her that she'd be going away soon on vacation. And she talked about how her parents had been sick that night, and she kind of implied that she thought maybe someone was trying to poison them. She said, I feel afraid something is going to happen. Mm, That's pretty suspect. Why? Well, if something happens the next day, it's a hell of a coincidence. Yeah, the prosecution was like, she was trying to build up this story. Yeah, except that's a terrible plan. Yeah, we don't know how smart she was. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Alice said she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Wow. Discourteous. That's a pretty big insult. I was going to say, if discourteousness will get you murdered. Woof. 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 And your aged wife, too. (laughs) Then she talked about seeing Lizzie burn the blue dress and how Lizzie had said she was burning the dress because she'd gotten paint on it. So the defense stands up and they start suggesting that if the dress was really covered in blood, why on earth would Lizzie burn it openly in the kitchen for anyone to see? Why wouldn't she get rid of the dress more discreetly? How? I don't know. Hmm. All right. What was the What was the answer? Was there an answer? No. They're just they're no, just kind of like yeah. I they're kind of like this doesn't like, really this doesn't make, make sense, sense, and this yes. is why this doesn't make sense. But right. I'm kind of with you because my understanding is that she, even though she was living at home, she was being watched pretty closely. So it's not like she could like sneak out yeah. with a bloody garment too easily. Yeah. Although surely this Alice Russell character didn't come over and come over into this house where these two people had just been murdered. That sounds stay. like she did. It does sound that way. Oh, that's a good friend. <laughs> Even though she kind of screwed her over yeah. on the witness stand. So the defense made a pretty strong case. They aggressively cross-examined witnesses and generally just talked yeah. shit about the prosecution. They were like, oh, you guys have the murder weapon, do you? It's that hatchet blade, is it? Where's the handle? Huh? You got the handle? No? Well, sounds like you don't really have the murder weapon then because you can't just come at somebody with just a hatchet blade. And they were like, oh, by the way, your timeline for these murders does not work. If Andrew died when you say he died, then that gave Lizzie almost no time whatsoever to hide the weapon, wash away all the blood from her clothes and hands and face, and then scream for the maid. Yeah. Which I think is a pretty good point. I agree. Because, like, the police did talk about how weird the crime scene was because, you know, your famous line is there was blood everywhere. Yeah. There kind of wasn't. It was like there was blood obviously all over the two murder victims, but there wasn't blood, like, throughout the house. No. No. Which I think... Okay, Uh stab me if I'm wrong here. No, go for it. What up? But I think that that proves a case that someone in the house did do it and not some intruder. Because if an intruder Uh is coming in, they're running through her house with 
through the house with the axe from one victim to the next. They're dragging that bloody thing down the hall. They're dripping blood between rooms. Wouldn't that be the case for anyone who was going No, out? not if Lizzie's doing it in her own house. You think she'd be more methodical? Yeah. But. She doesn't have to worry about getting out of the house. Or anything like that. And she'd be the one to have to clean up the fucking mess. So <laughs> she's like, let's keep this blood to a minimum. She's got a maid. But maybe she's in love with the maid. Yeah. And doesn't want the maid. She is to- in love with the maid. Secret lesbians. Secret lesbians. <laughs> I, I still don't know that I get what you're saying here. Because, like, I think an intruder, like, if they come in. You think he's going to be, like, wiping the blood off of the axe in the one room and making sure he's going to carry it with, like, the little drippies are going to come on his hand so that he doesn't, you know, drip blood as he goes from one. No, he's a fucking intruder. Okay. I just don't... I don't know. Don't give me that face. I just, like... I kind of feel like if you're murdering people with axes, I don't care if you live there or if you don't live there, would you really be that focused on the cleanup? If you lived there, yes! If you didn't live there, no! That is my point! I think that's super weird. I don't. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) On a related note, and I only found this one place, but I think it's super interesting, so I'm including it anyway. So we just talked about how the timeline didn't make sense. The defense was like, how would she have had time to clean herself up, do all this stuff? Apparently, the prosecution might have floated a theory that um, Lizzie did these crimes in the nude. That means not a bad theory. <laughs> I think it's crazy. I mean, it's slightly weird, but <laughs> I don't know that it's crazy. You get naked with an axe and you kill your parents? Yeah, and you don't have to... I'm, this goes back to the cleanup, Kristen. <laughs> you know, the other thing I'm thinking is, I mean, they didn't have indoor plumbing. Cleanup would have been really... Would have been a bitch. Yeah. Huh. For her, her lesbian lover maid. I still don't think they were lovers. You don't? No, I really don't. I really do. Based on nothing, though. Like, Oh, no, this is based on lots of facts. <laughs> of course it's based on nothing! <laughs> I just think it's funny because I feel like, of the two of us, I'm the one who always thinks everyone's gay. And this yeah. time I'm like, no. You know, I think... For sure. Yeah. You know, a lot of people agree with you. I don't know why I'm being like, no, you're wrong. (laughs) And I will tell you, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I usually think they're bullshit. Mm -hmm. Not this one. Okay, we're going to talk conspiracies (laughs) at the end of this thing. Uh, Let's see. The defense was strong, but the prosecution wasn't too worried. They were like, it was for sure Lizzie. She's a big old sketch ball, and we can prove it to the jury. All we have to do is show them the inquest, show them her testimony, which, by the way, was just a bunch of contradictory nonsense. She said that around the time of her father's murder, she was out in the barn looking for lead sinkers for the fishing trip. But then she said that she was out there looking for a piece of tin to go over a screen door. Those are very different. She said she was out there for 15 minutes. 
Then she said she was out there for 30. Hmm. She said she came back into the house because she heard a cry for help. Or a groan or something. But she also said she didn't hear anything coming yeah, from the house and she came back sense. in. Mm-hmm. Her story changed and changed and changed and changed. It wasn't a confession, but it was so muddled that the prosecution was like, this is pretty damn close to a confession because she's just, she's doing this to herself. She's just messed up. Yeah. The defense was so worried about that testimony that they start talking to the three judges. They're like, you cannot show that to the jury. She didn't have an attorney present. And let's face it, by that point, she was basically charged with the two murders. Even though she wasn't technically charged yet. She couldn't leave her home because she was constantly surrounded by police. And right before she was questioned, she'd been told that she was the main suspect. And oh, by the way, the DA had a warrant for her arrest all drawn up and ready to go before the inquest. So even though she wasn't technically charged yet, she might as well have been. And that means that she should have been read her rights and she should have had the right to an attorney. (laughs) You're giving me this look. Interesting. The prosecution was pissed. They were like, are you kidding? First of all, she was just a suspect. At the time of the questioning. She was not a prisoner. She was living at home. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's not like we're trying to get a confession admitted into evidence. She doesn't confess anything. She just denies everything. She just does it so badly that it's great for our case. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your thoughts on this? Um, Well... I don't know. It sounds like they it was they were within the law. I think they were bending the law. Well, I imagine they were, but yeah. it's not like they broke it in half. <laughs> <laughs> oh. See, I I think I think they were being big old sketch balls. That's the second time you've said that on this podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and not just on this podcast, on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so the three judges huddled and they agreed with the defense. Police should have informed her of her right to remain silent, but they didn't. And even though she technically hadn't been charged at that moment, she probably should have been. Mm -hmm. So that was like the biggest blow to the prosecution that could have happened. But later it was time for the local pharmacist to testify. So the prosecution is like, all right, we're back on track. The pharmacist is going to say that Lizzie came in to buy poison the night before the murders and he turned her away. By the way, she said she wanted it to, like... Kill rats? No, it was, like, to clean... Kill her mother and, <laughs> and father? Oh, it's nothing bad. I just want to murder two people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, she said she wanted it to, like, clean some coat she had. I don't... Yeah. A coat of arms? The look you're giving me right now is the same look that the druggist gave her. He was like, uh... N- I've heard it for, like, jewelry cleaning, but never... I know. It was some weird kind of coat, too, and of course I can't remember. I want to say seal skin, but I'm 100% sure I'm wrong. Shark skin? No, I would have remembered that because that sounds really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for real. I wouldn't forget shark skin coat. Huh. So anyway, the defense was like, ooh, ooh, bad. This is going to be bad. 
(laughs) Yo, judges, could we talk to you guys for a minute? So they start building this argument. They're like, how is this relevant? She's on trial for murdering two people with a hatchet. She's not on trial for poisoning anybody. Yeah. This has nothing to do with, with the case. Meanwhile, the prosecution is like, uh, no, 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 this is not happening to us again. This absolutely is relevant. It shows where her head was at. It shows what she wanted to do. She wanted to kill these people. The judges sided with the defense again. Why, what what <laughs> is going just, on with you? I'm just trying to take this all in. The judges said that the story was too remote to have any connection to the murders. So the jury never heard the pharmacist's testimony. Really? I think this is total bullshit. That is total bullshit. I agreed with the defense on that other thing. Yeah. Yeah, she should have had her attorney present there. They were bending the law. Blah, blah. Oh, okay. This one? Okay. I I completely agree with the prosecution. It shows her state it's of pertinent. mind. It shows yeah. what she wanted to do. Yep. Clean that shark skin coat. <laughs> I'm picturing it like you know how people have those bear skin rugs that still have the bear head on them. Yeah, I'm picturing like a it's shark got the fin. No, I'm still with a shark head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your head goes in the head. That's the hood, <laughs> and then the fins on the back. Beautiful. Yeah, got to keep that thing clean. <laughs> that thing's dirty. People are gonna look at you funny. That's right. <laughs> Doctors were also called to testify. And for the most part, everyone agreed that Abby died an hour and a half before Andrew. One doctor who had their stomachs tested for poison, which is the thing I was talking to you about earlier, said that he didn't find any traces when? of poison. Huh? When were you talking to me about earlier? When you were like, just oh, <laughs> you turd. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, they don't have, they didn't have any traces of poison in their system. Okay. Which I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Another doctor shocked a ton of people when he was like, uh, I hate to break it to everybody, but an average woman totally could have committed these crimes. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. The theory at that time was that the vagina would stop the hatchet from coming out. <laughs> Sorry, does that not make any sense? No. That's just what they believed in those olden times. It's weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> then the defense took over. People testified about seeing sketchy guys around the Borden house. But of course, the prosecution had had people say, no, there were no sketchy dudes yeah. around. They also had two workmen who said they'd been up in the Borden's barn a few days before the murders. Which was pretty damning. Because they said the dust hadn't been disturbed. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. So, you know, Lizzie's alibi had been like, oh, I'd been up in the barn. And the prosecution was like, no, you weren't because there were no footprints. The dust hadn't been disturbed. But clearly, if these two workmen had been up there, the prosecution and police didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. They were either lying or they just hadn't looked hard enough yeah. for the footprints. Yeah. Either way, they couldn't be trusted. Mm-hmm. And by this point, people were really fed up with the job the police did on yeah. this. They felt like it had been really sloppy. 
Lizzie's sister, Emma, also testified in her sister's defense. She said, Lizzie had a really good relationship with dad. Things were fine with the stepmom. She did admit that she and Lizzie had gotten upset when their father transferred one of his properties over to her stepmom's family. You know, like I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. But she was like, you know, that wasn't a huge deal. No recollection of it. (laughs) Am I being too obvious again? If you recall from earlier. (laughs) All right. They don't remember at this point, Kristen. (laughs) You know what? This is all your fault because you forced me to jump ahead several times here. If you just sat totally silently, this wouldn't be an issue. Got it. Don't do the silent thing. That'll freak me out. (laughs) Like I could do it anyway. No, okay. And she also said, I was the one who told Lizzie to burn her dress. I looked at that thing, said, hey, that's got paint on it. You should burn it. Was it red paint? (laughs) Kind of like brownish paint? Kind of like a maroon. (laughs) (laughs) In closing arguments, the defense talked a lot about Lizzie's character. She was a good woman. A Christian woman. The person who did this was a maniac or a devil. Mm. Wasn't her? Mm Mm-hmm. That sweet, old, 33-year-old spinster. (laughs) After the closing arguments, one of the judges was so moved that he made a speech to the jury, basically advocating for Lizzie and saying that circumstantial evidence wasn't enough. Wow. I know. I think that's super weird. That is super weird. The jury deliberated for 90 minutes. They found her not guilty. Yeah. Newspapers at the time praised the jury's verdict. The prosecution hadn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that she did it. Yeah. Despite that fact, a lot of people still thought she was guilty. The fancy pants people of Fall River shunned her for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. After the trial, Lizzie and Emma bought a new house for themselves in the more fashionable area of Fall River. They didn't move away? Can you believe that? No, I would have got the fuck out of there. No kidding. I think that's super weird. I mean, in that day and age, you can move two towns over, nobody's ever heard of you before. Exactly. That's dumb. Do you think Could've that's... Could have been living it up in the Cape. <laughs> but do you think that's... What do you think that points to, though? Well, I don't know that it points to anything. I mean, it's just kind of a dumb decision. Okay. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. See, part of me feels like, gosh, does that mean you're innocent? And you're like, no, I'm no, 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 <laughs> guilty. Okay. <laughs> I mean, probably. Yeah. Here's what I want to know in this new fancy house. Did they have indoor plumbing? Of course they did. Electricity? Of course. Yeah, probably. The finest flushing toilet money could buy. (laughs) You know, I've always liked those old-fashioned ones that are like in two. Oh, yeah, where you pull the chain. Pull the chain, yeah. Yeah. Feels like you're really doing something. (laughs) They inherited a ton of money. Is that where the phrase yanking your chain comes from? Oh. Google it. You think so? I don't know. No. No? It's an old mining reference. Oh, okay. So Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> they inherited a ton of money, obviously. Yeah. 
But that didn't stop Lizzie from making headlines a few years later for shoplifting. What? Yeah. She was accused of shoplifting. What? What was she accused of? I'm not sure. I didn't Hmm. dig that deep. Hmm. But I saw something else um, where that was not the first time she'd been accused of shoplifting. Really? Yeah. But... I don't know. She's in that same damn town. People think she's ske- a big old sketch ball, as Kristen would say. But Wouldn't you look to find her? Oh, sure. You'd be watching her yeah. like a hawk. Yeah. Yeah. She goes into the hardware store. You're like, mm, mm-hmm. lock up Stay the out of the hatchet section. <laughs> um, no, but the thing I saw, and of course I did not write this down. The thing I saw was that she'd been accused of stealing before the murders, too. Mm. Interesting. But I can see that because her dad didn't want to buy her stuff. Yeah. Now she's got all the money. But see, but now she's got all the money, but she's still stealing. She's accused of stealing because she's a big old sketch ball and people don't like her. But she's a secret lesbian, which they frowned upon in 1892. This is true. By the 1900s, everyone was cool with it. (laughs) Eventually, in the early 1900s, Emma moved out of their shared house and never saw Lizzie again. The the sisters died in 1927. Like, their deaths were really close. I want to say, like, nine days apart. What? Yeah. Neither of them married. They were buried next to each other. Get this. In her will, Lizzie left $500 in a perpetual trust for maintenance on her father's grave. Didn't leave anything for her stepmom. Duh. Okay. Should we talk conspiracy theories? Yeah. Okay, I didn't write any conspiracy theories down because you and I are not really conspiracy theory people. No, I think that she and the maid were... Lesbians, and they weren't allowed to be then. Mm-hmm. And the stepmother probably found out. Okay. Walked in on them canoodling. <laughs> Canoodle? Do you mean canoodling? Is that yeah, a thing? that's a thing. <laughs> they weren't canoeing, Kristen. I know they weren't canoeing. <laughs> canoodling. Yeah, canoodling. Oh, yeah. Kiss and cuddle. Wow. Canoodle. Okay. I'm learning so much from you. <laughs> and so she had to kill the mother, the stepmother. Uh-huh. Not her mother. I, yes, I apologize How for that. How dare Let's you? Say, had to kill the stepmother. And then once she did that, you know, an hour and a half went by. And she's like, well, shit. I'm not going to be able to get, a, get her out of here. I can't get away with this. Going to have to kill my dad, too. <sighs> okay. I mean, what's crazy to me so... That's truly something that you're just thinking. Yes. Okay, That that's an honest-to-God theory. Okay, so just so we're perfectly clear, I am looking at the Wikipedia page under Excellent. the theories section. Excellent. So I'm going to start from the top here. One theory is that Lizzie was physically and sexually abused by her father, which is what drove her to kill, okay. to kill him. And Why I'm, would she kill her stepmom first in that theory? Because she also hated her stepmom, I assume. Maybe the stepmom... Put up with it, didn't do anything about it. Why, but why an hour and a half separation? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I don't I believe don't leave this theory. theory. On um, to the next. I'm going to, well, let me read just a little more no. on this. 
So there's little evidence to support this, but incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at the time. Uh, blah, blah, blah. The theory was intimated in local papers at the time and was revisited by a scholar later. Yeah, I don't buy it. No. No. Because it really does seem to me that the focus of her fury was on the stepmom. Yeah, because she walked in on her canoodling with the maid. Mm-hmm. Next! <laughs> so next up... <laughs> Uh, la la la, mystery author Ed McBain, in his 1984 novel Lizzie, suggested that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian tryst with Bridget. Mm. Supported by famous podcaster Brandy Egan. Mm. Um, he speculated that Abby had caught Lizzie and Bridget together <gasps> and had reacted with horror and disgust, and that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick. When Andrew returned, she had confessed to him but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. McBain further speculates that that Bridget disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterward. In her, whoa, okay, I didn't know this. In her later years, Lizzie was rumored to be a lesbian. (laughs) I am tap dancing over here. Hold that tap dancing for just a second. (laughs) But there was no such speculation about Bridget, who found other employment after the murders and later married a man. Um, Well, but that, see, that doesn't mean shit to me. Yeah, that doesn't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, if she's a maid, she doesn't have, like, millions of dollars. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to marry a dude. Yeah. It's the 1800s. Or by this point, the 1900s. Early 1900s. Yep. Yep. Um, Putting a gold star by that theory. Okay. We don't buy the theory about the molesting dad, but lesbian lover for sure. the secret lesbian theory. Ooh. So Bridget died in Montana in 1948. Man, she lived a while. Yeah. Where she allegedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand to protect Lizzie. Ah, (laughs) dancing! Brandy, thank you for being a genius. (laughs) Man. There's another theory that Bridget did it. Possibly in... This this is so stupid. It says, possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. Okay. (laughs) Give me... Give me a break. No. No. no, Don't buy it. Not buying it. Okay, I'm going to read you one more just because this one kind of... It's not correct. I agree, but I want to throw this out there because I totally ignored this guy for this case, and I think it was probably wrong of me to do. So John Morse was Lizzie's maternal uncle. Okay. And he had stayed at the house the night of the murders. Oh. But he... So some people suspected him because Mm -hmm. they claimed that, like, oh, he didn't visit very often. He just randomly showed up this day. But then I saw another thing that was like, no, he... It wasn't super random, yeah, actually. No, I don't buy that. And people were like, his alibi is too good, which I think, come the fuck on, people. Yeah. So, you, man. Well, Brandy solved the crime, everybody. <laughs> With the help of Ed McBain. <laughs> God, that is so weird. You, you like, freaked me out when you said... <sighs> yeah, I, I think it just makes perfect sense. Man. Solved. Rubber <laughs> stamp it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You guys are mean. listening to history in the making. <laughs> That's why they tune into this podcast. 
I don't tune in for the laughs. I tune in for them nope, to solve that's crimes. That's correct. <laughs> now can we be like every other podcast when they solve a murder? What happens? They get really full of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> We're already there. <laughs> You know, a lot of people say that the crime of uh, the Borden family would have never been solved if Let's Go to Court hadn't followed up on it. Yeah, so that's the trial of Lizzie Borden. That was good. That was really good. I'm glad I could solve one of history's greatest mysteries. Wow, thank you, Brandy, for being here, and thank you for rhyming that. That's very much appreciated. How did you feel about the jury's verdict? Uh, I'm not surprised by it at all. I think they did the right thing. Yeah, I do too. I think there was too many questions. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I'm she had pretty to have sure done she it. did it. Yeah. Come on. Yep. Okay. Well, that was nuts. I loved it. Okay. Are you ready <laughs> for another crazy mom case? Yes. So, you know, I was kind of inspired by your crazy mom case. And then I did the Mary Beth Tenning one last week. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I just followed the breadcrumbs to this case. I've okay. never heard of it. There's a crazy tabloid thing in the 1960s. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Okay. So at 9 a.m. on July 14th, 1965, Alice Crimmins called her estranged husband, Eddie, in a panic. Have you got the kids? She cried. No, he replied. Don't play games with me, Alice demanded. I don't have them, Eddie said. Eddie, don't fool around. Do you have them? Please don't do this to me. Eddie, they're missing. When Eddie heard the news, he rushed to Alice's house, a ground floor apartment in the Kew Garden Hills neighborhood of Queens, New York. Until their separation, this had been the home that they had shared. Eddie and Alice, born Alice Mary Burke in 1939, uh, had been high school sweethearts and had married in 1958 because that's what young couples of that day Mm -hmm. and age were expected to do. The couple quickly grew into a family with the birth of a son in 1959 and the birth of a daughter a year later. They, of course, named them... Oh, no. Eddie and Alice, because apparently there was a fucking shortage of names. Was this a trend? I don't know. Their daughter, Alice, did go by the nickname Missy to help ease the confusion. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah. That's the thing I don't like about this. Someone has to get a shitty nickname. Yeah. I mean, you can't be calling everybody in the house by the same fucking name. Hmm. The two children were described as well-behaved, cheerful youngsters who would sit in their bedroom window and wave at passersby. But as happy as the children were, the same could not be said for the marriage. Eddie didn't like to spend a lot of time at home. He worked a lot, and when he wasn't working, he liked drinking with the boys. Mm. And Alice had discovered in her marriage that she liked sex. A lot. So when Eddie began to spend more time away from the house, she looked to fulfill her desires elsewhere. Uh Uh-oh. Initially, she was discreet in her extramarital affairs, but by 1964, she'd gotten a bit lax, and Eddie walked in on her with another man in their bed. Oh. 
Fade. So was Eddie? Eddie was just out hanging with the boys. He like, was drinking. Just so out he drinking with the boys. Yeah. Oh, he wasn't cheating on her. No, he was just either at work. He worked a lot. She because Alice stayed home, and or he and then when he was done working, he wanted to go drink with the buddies. He didn't want to come home to his wife Alice mm. and his kids. Mm. And so she was, she was over it. So she yeah. was bringing bringing dudes in. So. When he walked in on her and another man in bed, they'd formally sep- formally separated, and uh, things got pretty nasty pretty fast. Following their separation, Eddie installed a wiretap on Alice's phone Whoa. so he could listen in on conversations with her p- potential suitors. Ooh. Then he'd installed a wiretap from her bedroom to the basement. So he could sneak into her home when she was entertaining a lover and listen to them have sex from the basement. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. On one instance, he burst into her bedroom while she was having sex and chased her lover from the house naked. What? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was, yeah. He was messed up. Oh, he was, yeah, he was not letting her go real easily it sounds like but he wasn't it's weird because he didn't really fight to keep her well i mean if you're putting wiretaps on the phones <laughs> if you're listening i mean there's something real oh, yeah. wrong with you oh my gosh so things between the estranged couple escalated further in february of 1965 when 26 year old alice took an unplanned cruise to the bahamas with her 50-something millionaire boyfriend, Anthony Grace. Alice swore that the cruise was an accident, though. What? She and a friend were using the bathroom on Tony's boat while docked and somehow got locked in. It wasn't until the boat was at sea, en route to the Bahamas, that the women were discovered in the bathroom. Alice had called the children's nanny and convinced her to stay a few days with the children. But when Eddie found out that the children had been home with just the nanny without his knowledge while their mother was traipsing around with her boyfriend, he was pissed. Yeah, and I'm not buying one bit of the <laughs> oopsie, oops, I went on a cruise oops, story. I went to the Bahamas. <laughs> Classic. We've all been there. Yeah. That incident, coupled with a complaint from Eddie Jr. that he often saw men in their undershirts in the living room in the morning when he woke up, led Eddie to file for sole custody on June 22nd, 1965. He alleged that Alice was an unfit mother who was subjecting her children to an endless string of strange men due to her immoral lifestyle choices. Alice's own mother wrote an affidavit siding with her son-in-law. Ooh. She called Alice mentally ill and asked mm. the court to grant full custody to Eddie. She called him a good man who would take good care of the children, who were, in her opinion, innocent victims of a sick mind. Did everyone know that he was tapping her phones and, like, people were Literally, my next sentence is, she obviously didn't know about his extracurricular basement activities. Okay, because I was going to say, like, ooh. (laughs) No, so in her mind, there's this great father and her daughter who's just banging any dude who will look her way. Sure. Just three weeks after this filing, Alice would wake up to find the kids missing from their room. Oh, Okay, so this takes us back to that Wednesday morning, July 14th. 
When Eddie arrived at the apartment, he found the kids' bedroom window open. So it's a ground floor apartment. Mm -hmm. The kids' bedroom has this big window, but it like swings open rather than being like a lift open. Gotcha. So it's like two sides that just, you know, push out and then it's open. So that was wide open. And he searched the house, didn't find anything just as Alice had. And so they called the police. Detective Gerard Peering, a 30-something father of six, and his easygoing partner, George Martin, were sent to the Queen's apartment to investigate the case of the missing children. In fact, when the call came in about this, Peering requested to take the case. Okay. He's like, I'm on it. Let's go. Yeah. When Peering first laid his eyes on Alex on Alice Crimmins after arriving at the home, he was taken aback. Here was a woman whose children were missing but she wasn't sobbing or hysterical. Oh, my. Instead, the beautiful young mother was heavily made up, sharply dressed in tight pants and a floral top and heels, and her short red hair was elaborately teased and styled. By his own recollection, Detective Peering disliked her on sight. Hmm. He told his partner, you interview the guy, I'll take the bitch. Oh, bad yikes yeah real bad all because he gets the scene he expects to find this sobbing mother and instead he finds she looks way too good yes a beautiful woman yeah alice walked detective peering through the previous night's event while police looked over the house for evidence she said other than taking the kids with her to put gas in the car that night they'd been home all evening she'd fed the children veal that she'd bought from the butcher that day for dinner at 7.30. The kids had gone to bed sometime after 9, and then she had taken her pregnant 11-year-old dog, named Brandy, (laughs) for a walk. She'd checked on the kids at midnight, taken a bath, and then hadn't gone to bed until after 3 a.m. due to a contentious phone call with her drunk, estranged husband, during which they'd fought about money. Mm. She'd slept until nine the following morning, and that's when she woke up to find the children missing. But Detective Peering was suspicious of Alice from the moment he met her. He knew her type. He knew her lifestyle, and he didn't approve. So when word came in a few hours later that they had found four-year-old Missy's body in a vacant lot, oh, no. he decided to put Alice through a little test. Without any knowledge of what they were going to see, <gasps> Detective Peering took Alice to the vacant lot oh, oh and escorted her directly to the tiny body of Missy. The delicately featured blonde lay on her side, dressed in a white t-shirt and panties. A floral patterned pajama oh. top was twisted and knotted around her neck. <gasps> Alice swooned and collapsed at the sight of her, saying only, It's Missy! As Detective Peering caught her. But she didn't cry. She didn't cry at the scene. She didn't cry in the police cruiser. In fact, she didn't cry until they reached her home and she stepped into a crowd of TV and news reporters, flashbulbs going off all around her. Suddenly, she broke down sobbing. Oh, that's it's not great no it's for sure not great but it could also be shock yeah i i 
and we've talked about this before. Oh, yeah. People grieve in very, very yes. different ways, and there's not a right way or a wrong way. But I, as sexist as this detective sounds, I'm kind of with them. Yeah. This was it in the minds of detectives. This woman didn't care about her children. This was simply a calculated attempt to simulate grief for the cameras. This opinion was reinforced the next day when when detectives wishing to interview Alice were kept waiting while she finished putting on her makeup. This woman's daughter had just been found dead. Her son was still missing. She was supposed to be in the highest state of grief. What the fuck was wrong with her that she was so concerned about her appearance? I relate to this very personally because I I am willing to bet that I would be putting my makeup on that morning. You and I are a lot alike yeah. in this regard. <laughs> yes. I mean, part of the reason we met at 1230 today instead of noon was because neither one of us had makeup on in That's time. That's right. Now, granted, this is not a life or death situation. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it was reported that Alice was very self-conscious about her appearance without makeup because she had heavily scarred skin from teenage acne. So she expertly applied like a series Mm -hmm. of makeup each morning that completely covered that. Yeah. But investigators' opinions and suspicions of Alice would be changing no time soon. Several days after after the discovery of Little Missy's body... Eddie's body was discovered in an advanced stage of decomposition um, in a wooded area. Near Missy's body or no? Uh, Several blocks from where Missy's body was. In fact, the body was so badly decomposed that no cause of death was able to be determined. Then, within a week of the the children's funerals, Alice Crimmins, Mm -hmm. mother of two dead children, seemed to simply resume her normal life. She and Eddie reconciled, and she spent her days doing housework and preparing him meals. And then in the evening, they would go out drinking and dancing. Investigators cited this as further proof that she was a cold, callous murderer. What other explanation could there be? I mean, that that's just who she was. Yeah. Although, I've got to say... I, I agree. I think it doesn't look great. No, it, it looks terrible. It looks terrible. And, I mean, we all know that everyone grieves exactly the same way. So, it, certainly nobody has ever drowned their sorrows in drinking and trying <laughs> to forget. Yeah. And we everybody knows that never happens. In addition to her highly suspicious behavior... Detective Peering was sure that Alice was responsible for the death of her children due to some inconsistencies between Alice's recollection of events, evidence at the scene, and the autopsies of the children. Okay. Alice had told Peering that she'd fed the children veal for dinner that night at 7.30, but the autopsies had found pasta in their stomachs and no meat. And Missy's stomach had been quite full. The medical examiner determined that she had died within a couple of hours of eating the pasta. Hmm. Could someone have a, have abducted Missy and fed her pasta before killing her? Detective Peering didn't think so. 
But that timeline didn't make any sense. No, because she said she saw them at midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Um, on Peering's inspection of the scene the day the children went missing, he recalled seeing a frozen manicotti box in the trash and the remaining portion of the pasta wrapped up in the fridge. He'd not bagged the trash as evidence, though, nor had he photographed it. And Alice denied that it had ever existed. In fact, the only evidence that this manicotti that this manicotti existed at all is Peering's own memory of it. He did not, nor did any other detective at the scene, make any kind of note of it. And at this point, when Alice tells this story about feeding them veal, the autopsies haven't come back. She's got no reason to lie about what they, she what fed I'm them for dinner. What would be the motivation for There's, lying? There would about, be no reason yeah. to lie about what she fed them for dinner. Unless you felt like it made you a bad mom to feed them something frozen and made you look better to say veal? I don't know. Okay. Then there was the open window. Alice told investigators that she believed maybe the kids had climbed out the window or perhaps someone had taken the children and had come and gone through the window. It was a large window, like I said, on the Mm -hmm. ground level, but it had a dresser partially in front of it. The children and or the intruder would have had to climb over the top of the dresser to access the window. This is not something that was difficult to do. The kids did it on a regular basis when they would sit in the window and wave at people going by. But in his investigation of the room, Peering noticed a layer of undisturbed dust on the dresser. This, of course, couldn't be the case for Alice's theory to be correct. Mm -hmm. But again, Peering had not bothered to make note of this or take pictures of it. It was, again, simply his memory of the scene. What do you think about that? I don't like that at all. Yeah. I don't like that at all. That's sloppy, and then it it comes down to how much are we going to believe him? Exactly. And even if he shakes out to be a perfectly good yeah. guy, yeah. memories are faulty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So by this time, Peering is sure that Alice killed her children. But he doesn't believe that she could have done it alone. She must have had an accomplice. So detectives turn up the heat on Alice. Over the next several months, they have her phone tapped and keep her under constant surveillance. Surely at some point, she would have to communicate with her accomplice. It became sort of a fight between officers over who would get to listen to Alice's phone calls. Because they were so hot? Not because she was spilling details about her suspected crimes, because she was engaging in regular sexually explicit phone calls with her many suitors. Police joked that it was like they were being paid to listen in on a dial for sex hotline. Wow. As for those incriminating conversations with her accomplice that they would sure that they were sure they would catch her having didn't happen, never happened. She never had any conversations of that nature. So when police were frustrated that they weren't getting what they wanted out of her, they turned to harassment. What? Alice had attempted to take on some secretarial jobs to get herself out of the house. She had taken the jobs in her maiden name, Alice Burke. Because her name was now well known throughout the city. 
but police would follow her to each job, and after a few days there, they would inform the employer that the efficient secretary they'd hired was actually the notorious Alice Crimmins, the promiscuous woman suspected in the deaths of her two children. What the fuck? Why would they do that? Each time, this would result in Alice's firing. Of course. They were hoping that if they harassed her to this point, that she would just break and just admit what she'd done. Oh, they'd get a false confession because they harassed her into it? Yeah. Great. Good detective work. Right. So Alice went from one employer to another, working for a few weeks as a secretary here, a receptionist there, an airline travel agent on one occasion, and then inevitably unemployed and looking for work again. Yeah. The surveillance team in charge of watching Alice's home would also call Eddie. They were on and off by this time, sometimes reconciled, sometimes not. So they'd call him anytime she was entertaining a male guest in her bedroom. And say what? Hey, she has a dude in her bed. Are you kidding me? It wasn't long before Alice discovered that they'd tapped her phone. And she began all of her conversations with, Hi, boys, drop dead. Good for her. I know. Okay. (laughs) You changing your opinion of her? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And now I feel horrible for her. I feel horrible for her, too. Because she's got two dead kids and she's Mm -hmm. being harassed by the police. Mm -hmm. She's unemployed. Mm -hmm. And really unemployable. Unemployable, yeah. And her creepy-ass ex-husband has the police, like, yeah, ur- ur- urging him on. I mean, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> Despite the constant surveillance and the added pressure on her, Alice never cracked as investigators suspected she would. But on November 30th, 1966, nearly a year and a half after the children's death, police got a lead they thought would break the case wide open. They received a tip in the form of a letter that read, May I please tell you of an incident that I witnessed? It may be connected and may not, but I will feel better telling it to you. This was on the night before the children were missing. The night was very hot and I could not sleep. I went into the living room and was looking out the window getting some air. This was at 2 a.m., A short while later, a man and a woman were walking down the street towards 72 Road. The woman was about five feet in back of the man. She was holding what appeared to be a bundle of blankets that were white under her left arm and was holding a little child walking with her right hand. He now hollered at her to hurry up. She told him to be quiet or someone will see us. At that moment, I closed my window, which squeaks, And they looked up, but did not see me. The man took the white bundle and he heaved it into the back seat of the car. She picked up the little baby and sat with him in the back seat of the car. The woman was thin with dark hair. The man was tall, not heavy, with dark hair and a large nose. This took place under a streetlight, so I was able to see it quite plainly. The car turned from the corner of 153rd Street onto 72 Road and out to Kissina Boulevard. Please forgive me for not signing my name, but I am afraid to. Wishing you the best of luck. Signed, a reader. P.S. About one hour later, I thought I saw the man getting into a late model white car. 
Police were elated over the contents of this letter, but they needed to track down the writer so they could question the person further. Mm -hmm. So they used the context clues in the letter to try and pinpoint the vantage point of the potential witness. Right. They reduced the possibilities to a reasonable block of residences. Then they eliminated any residents that had any loud air conditioner beside the living room window that would have kept the witnesses ah. from being a, from that would have kept the witness from hearing the conversation on the street that night. That's smart. That left them with 39 apartment homes. They then compared the handwriting from the anonymous letter to complaint letters that had been sent from some of those residences. They found a match. (gasps) Sophie Iramursky was a middle-aged, heavyset blonde who often suffered from insomnia. Oh, my God. When investigators interviewed her, they found her story somewhat revised from the version she'd told in the letter. Sophie told the police that now she recalled the woman saying, my God, don't throw her like that. Oh, no. When they tossed the bundle in the back seat. And while the letter described an incident that may be connected or may not, Sophie now identified the woman she had seen as Alice Crimmins. No, no. Iramursky knew Alice from around the neighborhood and Alice's photo was regularly now in the newspapers. So it seemed rather odd in the letter that Iromirsky only saw her as a woman with dark hair, but now was certain mm-hmm. of her identity. But the police paid little mind to these discrepancies. Yeah, because they didn't want to hear that. Expanding on Sophie's account, investigators put together a scenario of a murderous mother aided by a man with mob ties. For some reason, Alice had strangled Missy to death, they theorized. Perhaps Missy had intruded on Alice when she and a boyfriend were going at it hot and heavy. And Alice had been murderously enraged and her horrified lover had made a quick exit never to be seen or heard from again. That is ridiculous. Alice had told Peering during his investigations of her, her when he was questioning her that she had made a phone call that night to a bar and had spoken to Anthony Grace, this kind of on-again, off-again boyfriend of mm-hmm. hers. They decided that the call must have been about Missy's killing and that Grace, eager to shield his lady love from the results of her impulsive actions, had placed a fatal call from the busy bar. He had called a hoodlum and told the thug to go over to the crimin's <laughs> place to silence little Eddie. Mursky had seen a dead Missy being carried in a blanket and her older brother obediently trudging to his doom. Her eyewitness account was just what they needed to secure an indictment against Alice Crimmins. It was just the bullshit they needed. Mm-hmm. You know who this woman reminds me of? Who? Pig Woman. Yes! Yes, from the Torn Love oh Letters case. Just you wait. Okay, okay. I have to, I'm sorry, let me take one second here because I just realized that I didn't do this at the top. I need to call out where I got most of this information from because okay. um, I feel bad that I'm this far in and have not done it yet. I pulled most of this from an article um, by Denise No for the Crime Library. Cool. Sorry, Denise, for just now giving you credit. Denise, if you're angry, just send a hoodlum after Brandy. (laughs) (laughs) 
On September 11th, 1967, two years and two months after the deaths of little Missy and Eddie, God, this poor woman. Alice Crimmins was arrested for first degree murder of her daughter. Yeah. She was not charged in her son's death because it could not be medically proven that he'd been murdered. Hmm. Okay. If Alice had thought the publicity was bad before, she was in for a shock. Now that she was officially charged in the murder of one of her children, her face graced every tabloid cover at the grocery store. They dubbed her trial the sex pot trial and described her as an amoral woman whose many affairs appear symptomatic of America's sexual revolution. Oh, give me a break. Yeah. Crimmins' sexual escapades were raked over for both their titillation value and as a source of moral outrage. The trial began in May of 1968, and it was a doozy. Both because of the sexually-themed testimony and because of Alice's many emotional outbursts. Oh, poor Alice. Richard Grimes, the doctor who had first inspected Missy's body after it was discovered, was among the first to testify. He described for jurors what he'd seen that day. I saw the body of a girl who appeared to be about five years of age. She was clad in a cotton undershirt, a pair of yellow panties. Alice interrupted his testimony by crying, no, and beginning to weep. Hmm. Judge Peter Farrell demanded order and told the doctor to continue. Dr. Grimes continued, Around the little girl's face, there was a cloth tie. The loose ends of the tie appeared to be the arm of some kind of garment. The tie was over the mouth of the child. The knot encircling the neck and the tie was rather loose. By this point, Alice was wailing and sobbing uncontrollably. By this point, Alice was wailing and sobbing uncontrollably. And people in the gallery had begun to cry along with her. Yeah. The judge put the court into recess. Alice had an outburst of a different nature during the testimony of Joe Rorick? Rorich? R-O-R-E-C-H. I have no idea. Rorich. <laughs> I like of Rorick. Joe. Joe testified. Joe was a semi-regular suitor of Alice's who, during the investigation, had been in some legal trouble of his own. Oh, did police make a deal with him? Due to to some sketchy business dealings, Mm -hmm. he'd ended up in some hot water over some bad checks. In exchange for immunity in those cases, he'd agreed to wear a wire while talking to Alice. But she'd never said anything incriminating during those occasions. Investigators kept drilling Joe, though, interrogating him over and over and over again over a period of several months. Finally, he gave up that Alice had said something incriminating to him in conversation. But just not when he was wearing a wiretap? Mm -hmm. Oh, shut up, Joe. When discussing the custody case, he said Alice had told him, I'd rather see them dead than with Eddie. Mm. At trial, an A usually loud and boisterous man, Joe had to be asked repeatedly to speak up. Yeah, because he was ashamed of lying. Yes. 
He told the jury what Alice had said to him, and he took it a step further, testifying that on one evening when conversation had turned to the children, Alice had said through tears, Joseph, please forgive me. I killed her. At this testimony, Alice Crimmins leapt to her feet and screamed, Joseph, how could you do this? This is not true. Joseph, you of all people. Oh, my God. This is horrible. It's horrible. Yes. Next to take the stand was the prosecution's best witness. Do you know who it is? The husband? Nope. Sophie, the window lady. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> and would you believe it? In the two years that had gone by since Did her the story night get better and more precise? Been looking out her window, she managed to remember a bunch of more details. A bunch more details? Scratch the of in there. <laughs> you know, whatever. A bunch of more details. <laughs> <laughs> oh. She testified how she had seen a woman carrying a bundle and a man and a little boy on that sleepless night at the window. Mm -hmm. He took the bundle and he swung the bundle under his arm and he walked very quickly to the car, Sophie testified as the courtroom listened in hushed anticipation. He took the bundle and he threw it into the back seat of the car. She ran over to him and she said, my God, don't do that to her. And then he looked at her and he said, now you're sorry? Mm-hmm. And she said, please don't say that. When asked if she recognized the woman in the courtroom, Sophie didn't hesitate. She pointed it an accusing her. finger at Alice Crimmins and said, that's the woman. God. Alice again jumped to her feet and screamed, you liar, you liar, you liar, you liar. Mm. Once the judge regained control of the courtroom, Alice's defense team attempted to point out the inconsistencies of Sophie's statements. Yeah. But they were able to do very little to tear her down. The spectators loved her and would applaud, laugh, and cheer at her answers. Are you serious? Yes. She held up well on cross-examination, and when she left the courtroom... She threw her fist into the air for the waiting photographers like she was a boxer who just won a prize oh. fight. Oh, shut up. Oh, no. I cannot stand this woman. Like, she just, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Finally. This was, like, her performance. Oh, yeah. 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 It went from, I don't know if this pertains, but I really want you guys to have this yeah. information, to... I fucking saw her murder in the street. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, Alice took the stand in her own defense. Uh Uh-oh. She spoke in a thin voice that did not carry well, so the judge recessed court until the next day so a microphone could be installed in front of her. When testimony resumed, she repeated the story she had told the police of her activities on the terrible night her children disappeared. She strongly denied that she'd ever confessed to killing Missy to Joe Rourke. (laughs) Crimmins was aggressively and belligerently cross-examined by prosecutor Tommy Lombardino. Lombardino. Okay. Tony Lombardino. 
Due to the rules of evidence in New York courtrooms at the time, he had complete leeway to delve into anything that might reflect adversely on her character. So it was all about her it sex life. It was all about her sex life. Okay, I Question think- after question after question about her sex life. That's awful. It didn't matter if it had no direct connection to the issues at trial. Some of their exchanges were really lurid. Of course. Um, In one particularly damaging exchange, Lombardino was able to leverage the deaths of her children with the apparently immoral acts of their promiscuous mother. Here's the exchange. Oh, no. Lombardino. Does Joe have a swimming pool? Cremens. He does. Lombardino. Did you swim in it? Crimmins. Yes, I did. Lombardino. What were you wearing when you swam in Joe's pool? Crimmins. One time a bathing suit. One time no bathing suit. Lombardino. And where were your children while you were swimming in Joe's pool without a bathing suit? Crimmins. They were dead. Well, that has nothing. It to- has nothing. What was she supposed to do? Yeah. Sit at home and cry constantly. Yeah. If she did anything other than that, she's not a proper grieving mother. And she better not have mascara on those eyes. No, definitely not. Alice Cremens left the stand on shaky legs. She knew that she damaged herself in the eyes of the conservative old-fashioned men who made up the jury. Oh, she didn't have any women on her jury? So it doesn't specifically say the breakdown, but that yeah. sentence I pulled directly from the article, yeah. that makes it sound like it's all men. Um, so her defense attorney, mm-hmm. was she advised to take the stand? Because that just seems like... Apparently. Oh, that seems like terrible advice, because you knew that that yeah. was going to come up. Yeah. Ugh. So she knew she damaged herself in the eyes of this conservative jury and reportedly one of the jurors commented to another that a tramp like that is <gasps> capable of anything. Oh, oh my God. When the jury came back, they found her guilty mm-hmm. of manslaughter, mm-hmm. not of murder. And it wasn't a shock to anyone but Alice. Alice was so shocked by the verdict that she collapsed into a coma in court. She spent two weeks in the jail infirmary before being transferred to prison to serve her sentence of five to 25 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you think it was one of those deals where... Like a lot of the people we've talked like, about, were, uh, they really thought like, there's no. Well, I didn't you do can't anything. Go to prison yeah. if you're not guilty. I really so do. I'm fine. I really do. I mean, they did. They didn't come back. I mean, they charged her. She was charged with murder. They sure. came back guilty on manslaughter. Sure. Okay. So it is a lesser. Yeah, it's a lesser charge. Charge, but, but still. still, yeah, she was so shocked that she collapsed into a coma. I've never even heard. Of I've that. never heard of it either. Apparently, it only happened in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> they were a crazy time. A crazy time where people could swim without swimming suits. 
Her attorneys were soon back in court asking for a mistrial. Three of the jurors had made trips to the crime scene, despite the judge's warnings that they were not to visit it. What? Yes. The court denied the motion for a mistrial, though, and Crimmins settled into prison life. Hold on. Yeah. During the trial, in their off hours, some of the jurors went... Yes! What the hell? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's terrible juror misconduct. It's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So she's, they've denied this appeal for, or they've denied this motion for a mistrial. Mm-hmm. And she's settling into life in prison. Um, she's just going to, I guess, serve her time. Right. But then she got a new legal team. A couple of well-known, big-deal New York lawyers who had followed her trial and thought she hadn't gotten a fair shake agreed to take her case on pro bono. Whoa! They filed an appeal, and while waiting for a decision, they asked a Queens County Supreme Court judge for bail on the grounds that there was a good chance the conviction would not stand. And he granted it. What? Just twenty After just 24 days in prison, Alice was free on bail. It would be another year and four months before the appellate court would rule on Alice's case. So she's out on bail. Mm -hmm. The appellate court's looking over the case. A year and four months later, they rule on it. What do you think they ruled? Please tell me they let her go. They threw out the conviction. Wow. But she was tried again. Oh. Her second trial began in March 1971. Wait, they threw it out on what grounds? Uh, juror misconduct okay. is the okay. is the grounds great, that they right. threw it out on. <laughs> that um, was great, which is great and right. <laughs> um, her second trial began in March 1971, six years after the deaths of her children. Oh my God, this poor woman. This time, the stakes were even higher. She had been charged with first-degree murder of her son, Eddie, this time, and first-degree manslaughter and the death of Missy. Because she was not found guilty of murder of Missy in the first trial, they couldn't charge her with it the second time. They could only charge her with manslaughter. Oh, double jeopardy? Is that... Kind of, yeah, because it wasn't... The conviction wasn't thrown out. It wasn't thrown out on conviction. It was thrown out on juror misconduct. Okay, okay. So they couldn't... Yeah, Whatever weird legal shit happened, they could okay. not charge her with murder. So, but so to get a murder charge in there, they charged her with the murder of Eddie. Who, even though they had no before, medical, they said yeah. we can't. Yeah, we can't prove what how how he died. Yeah, interesting. This trial was again a spectacle, but I'm not going to go into a ton of details about okay. it because it was really just the same. Same thing. Yeah. What I will say is that. The women's lib movement uh-huh. was a hot topic at the time, and Alice's sexcapades didn't seem to have the same immoral implications that they had had at her trial just three years prior. Okay, I'm so glad you're saying this, because I was wondering, when you were talking about people taking it on pro bono, yeah. was this a feminist It was. Thing? It was awesome. Yes. Hell yes. 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 Yeah. I, I wondered about that with the time period. Yeah, so only three years had passed from the first trial to this new trial. But the outlook on the sexual revolution was totally different. Right, right. In that short amount of time. Um, 
There was one big change at the second trial, though. A new witness came forward and backed up the window lady's story. Are you kidding me? He said that that night he had also looked out of his window and seen a man carrying a bundle, a woman, a dog, and a boy on the street that night. Alice was stunned at this new testimony. During a court recess, she went outside to the gathered news cameras and issued a desperate plea for help. I've come here to make an appeal, she began in a shaky voice. Tears blurred her blue eyes. Alice Crimmins was clearly terrified. I'd like anybody that lived in my neighborhood to come forward, she said. Anybody that lived in my neighborhood who might know something about what happened on the night of July 13th or the morning of July 14th. I'm asking for anyone that was out that morning between 1.30 and 2.30. Anybody that saw something or didn't see something. It doesn't make a difference either way. I'm asking for help for my side. Kremen's voice cracked, and it seemed like she might collapse into sobs, but she managed to choke out. I need that help because I did not kill my children. Anybody that just didn't see anything is just as important to me as someone who might have seen something. I didn't kill my children. I swear I didn't kill them. Can you see my I know, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. So the prosecutors are pissed Too damn that she's bad. done this. Too yeah. damn bad. Yeah. She did the, they said that it was part of a court order, that she wasn't supposed to do any press interviews and all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this doesn't come across on a podcast, but uh, Kristen is flipping the prosecutors off right now. And dancing while I do it. <laughs> They said, so prosecutors were pissed about it. They were like, you're not allowed to do that. And the judge gave her a warning. And they said, if she breaks any more court orders, we will revoke her bail and she'll be held in jail for the rest of her trial. Okay. But it worked. Yeah. The next day, there was another surprise witness. This time, it was the prosecution that was stunned by the testimony. That witness was Marvin Weinstein, a travel agency manager who claimed that he had been walking on 153rd Street in the wee hours of July 14th, 1965. He had been visiting a friend. When questioned about who was with him, he said, My wife, my son, my daughter, and our dog. Oh, my God. He went on to say that his son was three and a half at the time, and his daughter was two years old. Weinstein had carried his little girl in his arms, wrapped in a white blanket. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy testimony. Alice did not testify at her second trial. Yeah, she learned. Yes. Well, she might have had better legal representation. Yes. Yeah. But just before the case was handed over to the jury for deliberation, the prosecution pointed this out. In his summation, Prosecutor Thomas Dimakos said... She doesn't have the courage to stand up here and tell the world that she killed her daughter. Oh, no. And the shame and the pity of it is that this little boy had to die, too. 
You don't have to testify. That is at correct. Your own trial. So he can. That is correct, Kristen. <clears throat> but it made an impact on the jury. No. The jury came back with the harshest possible <gasps> verdict. Guilty of first degree murder in Eddie Jr.'s death and first degree manslaughter in that of Missy. Many in the courtroom burst into tears and Alice sobbed. Oh my Dear God. God, not again. People broke down crying. The, the defense attorney, the new defense attorney was like, I guess I convinced everybody but the jury. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that. The second trial of Alice Cremens ended and Cremens went to prison for what was assumed to be the rest of her life. But that wasn't the end. Oh my God, this story is so good. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) She had served more than two years behind bars when she was released in 1973. The appellate division of the Supreme Court in Brooklyn reversed her conviction in Eddie Jr.'s case, ruling that there was no evidence of murder. Yeah. It also reversed the manslaughter conviction in Missy's case because Demacos assertion that she didn't have enough courage to stand up here and tell the world that she'd killed her daughter suggested that a defendant who exercised the right to refrain from testifying mm-hmm. was admitting guilt. I'm doing a lot of things you can't see on the podcast. I'm in a full-on <laughs> victory pose right now. You solved Lizzie Borden's <laughs> case. I, I didn't quite do that here, but, you know, I made a good guess. Um, the DA appealed those rulings, though. No. Oh. And in February of 1975... You're killing me. The Court of Appeals upheld the reversal of the murder <gasps> conviction but reinstated the conviction for manslaughter and sent her back to prison and ruled that they would hear no further appeals in the case. (sighs) Alice Crimmins was paroled two years later in 1977 and released for good. Yeah. She married her longtime boyfriend, Anthony Grace, and lived much of her life in Florida on his yacht. After his death in 1998, it is believed that she moved back to the New York area, and it is believed that she is still alive and living a reclusive life under a different name. She would be 79 years old today. Whoa. But nothing's really known of her of her life now. Oh my gosh. Is that case not crazy? That's... That's insane. I have to look her up now. I wanna... She's beautiful. Alice Crimmins. And she rocked all the best hairstyles of the 60s, I have to say. Yeah. Ooh, she had some voluminous hair. Oh, man. All the best hairstyles. So I think it is crazy that neither of us have heard of this case. Let me tell you about the things that, that this has inspired in popular okay. culture. Okay. Okay, so there was a book about the case written um, called The Alice Crimmins Case, written by Kenneth Gross. Another book was Ordeal by Trial. Another book was The Investigation, a major bestseller by Mary Higgins Clark. Oh. Was written called Where Are the Children? And that was made into a movie. Holy shit. There was a made-for-TV movie called A Question of Guilt that aired in 1978. There was a play written called Landscape of the Body, 
Um, another play called Two Small Bodies, which was later adapted into a movie in 1993. Um, the Investigation Discovery series, A Crime to Remember, did an episode on this case called Go Ask Alice. And the 2017 novel Little Deaths by Emma Flint is a fictionalized account of this case. This is crazy. Is that not nuts? So... There was almost no evidence linking her to this. Nothing. No. Oh, and there's it's a, terrifying. I mean, it's just crazy. There's no evidence linking her to it. There's really no evidence linking anybody to the crime, but it doesn't matter because it didn't look like they looked into anybody else. Yeah. Not even the dad. Yeah. Well, and I'm sorry, but he seemed sketchy as fuck. You know, he was... I don't want to say bad things about him because there's no evidence against him either. He was sketchy, but he stayed by Alice's side during all of her criminal really? proceedings. And when she was convicted, he on the second trial, because he testified at the second trial. Okay. He did not testify at the first trial. He testified at the second trial. He wouldn't say anything bad about her. He simply said, we're no longer married and I don't have feelings for her anymore. But when she was convicted in the second trial, he broke down in tears. Of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the big mystery. If she didn't kill the kids, who did? Who did? Never know. Uh, I feel obligated since you solved my case. I know. You're going to have to solve this one now. I think it was Bob Moss. <laughs> <laughs> the mob boss. <laughs> I loved this case. Yes. It was just nuts to me from the beginning and this poor woman like oh god sorry, just because she liked to have some sex good grief yeah could there be a greater crime <laughs> it seemed like that was because on par she was, with because she was your good kids. looking and put together yes and didn't cry when she was supposed to cry yeah in the eyes of whoever man yeah i tell you what the stuff about wanting to have your makeup right before you come talk to people we're going to get locked up one day. Oh, for sure. Do you ever go anywhere without makeup on? <laughs> That's a hard no. <laughs> <laughs> You've never done it? Like maybe run to the grocery store. Yeah. And then I like put a hat on and sunglasses sure. and sure. wrap a scarf around my face. Put a shirt on that says I'm not Brandy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I... um. I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. 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 I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm not doing it for anybody else. It's for me. <laughs> I'm doing it for deep self-loathing. <laughs> well, I mean, really? Is that the reason? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, you know, when I do go out without makeup on, I don't feel like me. I, that's exactly it. Yeah. And I like, I don't walk as confidently. Like I Mm -hmm. look down so I don't make eye contact with people. Yeah. That's not my style. Nobody wants to see your unpainted eyes. That's correct. Man, these things. That was crazy. Right? And very upsetting. Yeah. So there are no other theories in this? Not that I came across. Oh my God. I'm sure there are, but man, that was so much. I couldn't go into more. Hang on. (laughs) (laughs) i'm consulting she has um and i feel like this is an insult to her for sure okay she has been called the casey anthony of her day 
Oh, that's not fair. No, I don't think that's fair at all. No. Should probably do that case next, huh? You gotta do it. <laughs> I would love it. Okay, I'm I'm looking up Alice Crimmins' other theories. <laughs> oh, these articles are too long. We don't have time. That was so good, though. So good. Do you have a story to tell us to wrap it up this week, Kristen? Um, so Norman is out of town this week. Yeah. He insulted me big time. So as I just told you a little bit ago, Peanut, so Peanut is diabetic. Yeah. I didn't just tell you that. No. Um, this is the first time I'm hearing of this. Yes, I know your Peanut is diabetic. So got the diabetic dog and Norman, like Norman is always in charge of yeah. giving her the insulin and, yeah. you know, doing that whole thing. Well, now we've got the JV squad doing the <laughs> insulin. And, like, you know, I draw her blood at night to see where her levels Which, are. Which, how They're do you all... do that? Does that freak you out? I mean, I mean, you don't like needles and blood. There's a reason why he does it. I mean, like, I am I really hate it. But I've yeah. gotten kind of used to it. Yeah. But her levels are, like, out of whack. Yeah. So, like, clearly mm-hmm. I'm doing something not great here, which is, you know, mm-hmm. bad. And then... Our AC crapped out yeah. again this summer on like when we were having a heat wave. A heat wave yeah. yeah. So that was great. So I was telling Norman, I was complaining to Norman all about this yeah. on the phone. And he goes, You know what this reminds me of? That episode of The Simpsons where Marge has a gambling problem and Homer's left in charge of everything and he messes everything up. And I was like, He compared you to I'm Homer? In what world am I Homer Simpson? In this world. In this world. Right now, this week. (laughs) This week you are Homer Simpson. Hey, look on the bright side. You get to eat donuts. Oh, my God. Hey, I did eat a lot of donuts this week. See? Man. There's always a silver lining. Sometimes it comes with a delicious frosting and sprinkles. Oh, my God. Norman, for our anniversary, like, so... You know, for our wedding, yeah. we had the donuts instead yeah. of cake. And so he went out to that donut shop, Doughboys, in mm-hmm. Raytown, Missouri. Yeah. And got us a bunch of donuts. And for some reason, for just the two of us, yeah, he got, like, a dozen donuts. Yeah, you buy donuts, you buy a dozen. I mean, it's just well, how donuts work, Kristen. Unless you're buying gas station donuts. If you're going to a donut place, you're buying a dozen donuts. Why are you being so condescending I'm right just now? saying, like, uh, don't act like Norm did something crazy. To me, it was crazy. <laughs> um, but not so crazy that I didn't eat, like, almost all of them. Finally, I got down to one. Uh-huh. One left. And I was like... It was, like, all kind of, like, dry and hard. And No, because I ate them quickly, so they were fine. <laughs> but I was like, I've got to bring this over to Kyla. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, give this to her because I can't. You can't yeah. handle it. I can't eat all, every single one. I have a donut story this week, too. What's your donut story? Okay. So, like, you know, every few days I, you know, get on, like, just check out the bank account, make sure there's nothing, like, crazy right. coming out of it. And I see that Zach has spent, like, $12 at Quick Trip, which, not that crazy. Zach loves Quick Trip. Quick Trip is a convenience I- store that's kind of like Midwest and it's just in the Midwest and the South, I think. Yeah. And I, I'm with Zach on this. They've got really good iced tea there. Yeah. They've got their beverages on. Point. Zach loves quick trip. And so, but like $12, dollars. I'm like, what the hell did you buy at quick trip? And he's like, Oh, I bought donuts for me and the guys at work. And I was like, I'm sorry. You did fucking what? 
Because I love donuts. Zach um, doesn't really care for donuts that much. So he never buys us donuts. And so I'm like, hold the fucking phone. There's been a murder. You bought donuts for guys at work. Uh-huh. Not for me. And he's like, ooh, I didn't even really think about it. I'm sorry. I'm, oh, my gosh. Woo, <laughs> So, Sunday morning. Uh-huh. Zach gets up and goes and gets us donuts. Oh, my gosh. And he comes home and he calls me into the living room. And he's standing, like, in the living room. He went and got Krispy Kremes. That's like yeah. the closest. To, it's not my favorite donut, but they're the closest to our house and whatever. Yeah. And I'm not complaining. Yeah. It was a really nice thing that he did. And he's standing in our living room with a box of donuts like on display wearing one of those Krispy Kreme like <laughs> paper hats. It was the cutest thing ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hate to compare our husbands, but I think if that were to happen to Norman, he would just be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, next time I'll get you. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's pretty awesome. It was. It was really. It was really awesome. What kind of donuts? He got a a sampler pack. You got to do the same. I hate oh, it when people yeah. do a dozen glazed. He got like you know like a couple glazed, couple with chocolate frosting, couple with strawberry frosting, couple with sprinkles. There are still two in my house that are way too dry to eat now because we didn't eat them fast enough. So. Well. <laughs> you guys need to take this more seriously. Uh, what's your favorite kind of donut? Ooh, see, I feel like this is going to be unpopular because of what you just said. Glazed donut is my favorite. Just your hmm, little basic, aren't <laughs> you? But it has to be like, for it to be my favorite donut, it has to be like the classic raised donut. Like a glazed Krispy Kreme is not my favorite donut because yeah. the consistency is different. Yeah. I like a doughy donut. Okay, I gotta say, Doughboys in Raytown. I've is never amazing. had it. It's so good. They've been around for, I was about to say a couple years, but no, we had our wedding. So you've been married Kate. five years yeah, now. Five years, yeah. Happy anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. They said we wouldn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, gosh, I love donuts so much. The frosted blueberry cake donut. Mm. Big fan of that. It sounds good. But also, anything with a pink frosting on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. Really, I don't know that I've ever had a donut that I didn't like. I don't like a... Okay, so there's two different types of cream-filled donuts. Mm-hmm. I like the fluffy cream, not the pudding cream. That pudding cream, get the fuck out of here. What? No, that's good. No! I'm going I to tell you a story about that pudding cream. Okay. Okay. The consistency of it. You know, I'm a consistency person, you are texture big, person. Yes. Really bothers me because, like, sometimes it's not quite set up enough. Yeah. It's a little bit runny. And one time when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. this little girl that I was playing with, I don't know, I think she was my grandma's friend's granddaughter. Anyway, because okay. I only play with her, like, one time. She had this pet rabbit, and it fucking, like, squirted this gross stuff all over her, and it looked just like that pudding filling. I don't know if it was pee. What? I don't know if it was poop. I didn't ask any questions. It was white and disgusting looking, and I think of it every time I see one of those donuts. I cannot believe that story didn't include an actual donut. Are you serious? Yes. That's ridiculous. <laughs> okay, now I will 
I will agree <laughs> that with that type of donut, you have to have like a plate directly under you at all times because it's gonna come squirting out. It's gonna be a mess. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. One thing we should definitely say. Yeah. Because I've been meaning to bring it up. Lillian on Twitter. Oh, man. Okay. You guys, if you don't know about Lillian on Twitter, she has made two drawings for us. She, yes. She's an actually skilled artist. Yes. And because she's a wonderful person, she has actually put her talents into making things for the podcast. Yes. So after we did the episode where Brandy said, uh, Bob Moss, the mob boss, <laughs> she created this image of Bob Ross, the painter, as a mob boss, and he's at an easel that's like covered in blood, and it says there was blood everywhere. It's hilarious. It's hilarious, and it's the most amazing thing <laughs> <Yes>. ever. <laughs> and then after we did the episode on, was it John, John Robinson, Robinson, the yeah. serial killer? Yeah. And we made that joke about him having a trench coat full of stamps. Well, <laughs> it's a pretty graphic image what she created, but we loved it. We loved it. Anyway, we just want to say thank you to Lillian because it's so fun. I mean, it's amazing when someone that talented is taking the time to, to interact with us. Oh, man, we love it. We are yeah. uh, so impressed by your talent. Yeah. <laughs> I know this is probably not where you thought it would go. But, <laughs> um, but we have shared that on all of our social media. So if you want to check it out, head on over to our Facebook, head on over to our Instagram, our Twitter. It, you'll find it in all those places. We love them. And while you're there, give us a like. Leave us a review. There's a new thing on Facebook where instead of a review, you leave a recommendation. So oh. people are recommending our podcast now, which is kind of cool. cool. Whatever. And then, uh, yeah, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review there. I'm sorry. I just burped. That's well, why I'm smiling. I was like, what are you laughing about? It wasn't that funny. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm just naturally hilarious, Kristen. iTunes. It just cracks me up. I know. Who doesn't love a good iTunes joke? <laughs> And uh, join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from FamousTrials.com, the Lizzie Borden Collection.com, and good old Wikipedia. And I got my info from Crime Library, Murderpedia, and Hazlitt Magazine. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff.